The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Hello and welcome to the Do Gooder podcast. Today we're talking about tourism, specifically about sustainable tourism. I'm super happy to welcome today's guest, Professor Joseph Chia. Joseph is a professor in sustainable tourism at the Center for Tourism Research in Wakayama University, Japan. He previously lectured in sustainable tourism at Monash University in Australia, and he's a board member of the International Geographical Union Commission on Tourism and Leisure and Global Change, and a steering committee member of Critical Tourism Studies Asia Pacific. His research draws from transdisciplinary perspectives, especially human economic geography, cultural anthropology and political economy, particularly in the Asia Pacific region. As a former practitioner, now an academic researcher and practicing consultant and analyst, his work emphasizes resilience building, sustainability and social justice. He's a prolific writer. His recent books include Tourism Resilience and Adaptation to Environmental Change, Tourism Resilience and Sustainability, Adapting to Social, Political and Economic Change, Over-Tourism Excesses, Discontents and Measures in Travel and Tourism, and finally, the most recent one, Modern Day Slavery and Orphanage Tourism, of which I am one of the co-editors and authors. I am so pleased to welcome you to the show, Joseph. Thank you, Lee. You should have restricted me to 50 words or less. <laughs> it's it... you having to go through all of that. But anyway, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, to join you, to have a bit of a yarn on the podcast about sustainable tourism. Uh, I'm very, very pleased to have you, and it's certainly quite the epic bio. I know you do a whole lot of work <laughs> and you're very, very prolific in your publishing. I want to start out by understanding a bit more about you and what the concept of doing good means to you personally. To me, doing good is in some ways, I mean, I, 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 I confess I'm not a very religious person, but for me, to, doing good is in some way related to karma, right? I'm kind of interested in ensuring that what I do has a residual and ongoing impact that is a positive one on everything and everyone around me. It makes me sound like a saint and I can guarantee you I'm not. So doing good for me is ensuring that everything I, I have put my fingerprints on has a positive and ongoing impact, not just to myself personally, but to the people I live around, not just the people, the, the social and ecological impacts of of everything that I do. Um, you know, so for example, in my consumption, my daily consumption in terms of, you know, here in Japan, 
plastic consumption is really, really high, and I'm I'm always constantly thinking about you know how can I reduce my my impact on the planet, on the earth? How can how can I be uh, a feather touch rather than a big footprint on the on the planet? That's it in a nutshell, Lee. I mean, this really ties into your work, obviously, and a lot of your work is around how to reduce our impact on the planet uh, in the specific area of tourism. I read a paper of yours that you recently published where you shared some World Tourism Organization statistics, and it said that there were more than 1.4 billion trips made in 2018 and over 1.7 trillion, and I'm assuming that's US dollars, Mm -hmm. in revenue was generated from tourism. Those are some massive numbers. I imagine this is unprecedented in human history. Yeah, totally, Lee. Um, And those numbers keep going up as a kind of a disclaimer. Those numbers are what we can count. That's international travel. What we don't count in all of that is a lot of domestic travel. For example, in, in countries like China and India, domestic travel far, far outweighs international travel, right? Yeah. So what that gives us is just a glimpse of the impact of travel, whether it be people traveling within their own countries or people traveling elsewhere. So by the end of uh, 2020, that's expected to exceed 1.4 billion. And to give you an example, uh, here in Japan at the moment, by the end of 2020, they're expected to, uh, to have over 40 million tourists. That's unprecedented, right? Wow. And by the end of 2030, it's going to climb to 60 million. And it's much the same in, in other countries around the world where they're expecting this growth. A lot of this growth is coming from China. Uh, and if we consider that only just over 10% of Chinese have passports, and that the number of Chinese passport holders are expected to double in the next five years, the impact of travel and the numbers of people you know, traversing the globe is only going to intensify. And of course, when we think about international travel as well, to travel internationally, especially for us from Australia, we have to jump on a plane. Imagine the, the extent of carbon emissions that more and more people traveling on planes will have. So when we talk about tourism, we see this complex interconnected phenomenon, right? So it's not simply about someone getting on a plane and having a holiday. There are all of these linkages along the way. For example, we look at a place like Bali, a very popular tourism destination. Tourists love to use water. Bali is running out of water or has run out of water. Yeah, yeah. Right? So in my research, I try to understand how can we still travel? Because let's face it, we all like to travel, right? It's, it's an important part of what we do. Yeah. And we can travel now because, at least in the recent history of humans, we are more wealthy than we've ever been generally across the globe. You know, the last major war we had was over seven decades ago, and we are more mobile. Nowhere is really out of, out of reach. We can go to Antarctica if we wanted to. We can go to the Arctic if we wanted to. Um, we can go up Everest if we wanted to. So as well as having, having the money, the time, and the mobility to travel, we uh, also have a desire to use travel as one of those things we do, because these days, you know, apparently, Sociologists talk about the shifts away from collecting material possessions towards experiences. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. The experiences we collect come through travel. And so do you think there's a shift towards that more generally? Is experience collecting rather than material collection? I, I think so. I think so. Well, 
a very slow shift, I would have to say. I mean, yeah. the, the, I mean, you know, in, in, the, in developed countries of the world, we still have our houses crammed full of belongings. We, if they're not in our house, they're in storage somewhere. You know, I, I think we, we're kind of moving, but probably not quickly enough. Yeah. In, in Japan here, there's the, you know, the Mari Kondo movement to, to living a minimal life, right? Whether that's just a blip on the radar or whether it's going to be something more long-term is another thing. Uh, it's a very difficult standing. If we look at fashion, for example, there's this push towards circular economy, you know, rather than fast fashion, moving towards a more sustainable way of living. Mm. Uh, there are some of my colleagues I know who have, have resolved to not buy any new clothes for an entire year. Or some of my colleagues say, I'm not traveling anywhere. I'm not going to hop, hop on a plane for the next 12 months as a way of trying to mitigate the impact of modern consumption on the planet. So you also write about the economic impact of tourism. Mm. I'm kind of interested briefly to understand how tourism now has grown so big that what is its impact on the global workforce and the import and export markets? The data you will see is that it makes up about one in 10 jobs. Wow. Uh, in terms of exports around, I think, eight or nine percent or something like that. And services exports a little bit more. These, you have to say, are estimates because when we think about what makes up tourism or what makes up your journey when you go on a holiday, there are so many different sectors and different components. You know, there's the transport sector, the banking and finance sector. You know, there's the, the, the security guard who has to look after your resort. Yeah. So we, we see that the sector is not like mining where it's, okay, we know what exactly we're taking out of the ground, we know what yeah. we're selling. It's made up of all these different components, which blurs, you know, being able to put your finger really on, on what it's made up. I would say those formal estimates that we see are, are, are underestimates. We don't even include domestic tourism in that because yeah. it's really difficult to count. So it's massive. But... Like a lot of things in modern economies, we often talk about the economic impact of things. You know, for example, the bushfires in Australia, we talk about the economic impact of bushfires. How do we put a cost on the non-economic things? You know, the social cost, the ecological cost. And it's the same thing for tourism. When we promote tourism to a place like Bali, yes, the, the, the economy is doing very well, thank you. But how do you put a cost on the island running out of water? How do you put a cost on yeah. the displacement of people the loss of heritage, the loss of sense of place. Yeah. When people go to a place to feel what is unique about it. But what if it all blurs into this kind of uniform tourism experience, right? And I want to get into that a little bit more with you, particularly around how this increase in tourism and has become quite intertwined with these global social and environmental issues. Before I do that, you refer quite a bit in your writing to the global north and the global south. Can you explain those terms for those listening that might not have heard them before? Yeah, so one of the areas that interests me is travel to the global south or travel to developing countries to define what we mean by global north and global south. It's something that um, development practitioners and academics who look at development economics and development studies in general try to kind of you know it's a bit like saying the first world and the third world right it's more a term that's come about through people in the northern hemisphere they refer to the north as the european countries of the north the european continent northern europe and the south as being africa yeah more or less for simplicity the global north are the developed countries of the world the global south are the less developed or developing 
or the middle income countries. To your question about tourism and its economic impacts, especially in the global south, we see that many countries in the global south see tourism as something that they would like to develop because really, if you're a small island country, you've got a nice beach, you can build some, some bungalows, people will come, right? You can service tourists. You don't need skyscrapers. And so tourism is one of those industries that developing countries with poor infrastructure can readily develop very easily. It's a source of foreign direct investment. It's a source of foreign currency. And it helps, you know, the idea of um, the multiplier effect. A dollar spent in the country can have a, a, a flow-on effect in so many ways. You know, if I pay a local trader on the beach a dollar for a coconut, that dollar then will you know, have a residual impact in a number of different areas, right? Yeah. Um, so tourism can work as a vehicle for development in theory, but what happens more often is that tourism is plugged into a global exchange, a global system, if you like, of supply and demand. And once you plug into that global system as a, as a developing country, you become beholden to the, the supply chain, you become beholden to the companies like, I, I'd say Thomas Cook, but Thomas Cook just went bust. They did. Um, once you enter the global supply chain, you are beholden to the people who send you tourists, you're beholden to people who invest in the infrastructure that develops hotels and resorts. So. The idea that tourism, every dollar spent in the, in the country in the global south, trickles down to the bottom is a very seductive one. Yeah. And many countries strive for that because they say, okay, if we can have this trickle down from tourism, how fantastic would it be? That's the theory, right? Yeah. If we look at the research, the research is very sparse in terms of, of, of demonstrating that that works. Much research that is done shows that there are bottlenecks along the way that prevents the trickle-down effect yeah. from occurring. Yeah, and I, and I think to, you know, the general public or the general consumer, there's a lot of focus on the benefits of tourism to communities in the Global South. And yes. they're mainly framed as, as economic benefits, as you, you just outlined. Mm -hmm. And yes. there is a, a very real assumption that if you go and spend money in these places, then those economic benefits will flow on to cause other improvements, I yes. guess, at a social level. But I'm quite interested in the counter argument to this, which is what you just touched on, that tourism actually has the capacity to cause a lot of harm to communities, to damage yeah. cultural landscapes to yeah. reinforce marginalization and I guess controversially to cement the legacy of colonization. Look, I, I have to preface this, this by saying that, you know, I'm not against tourism. I love traveling myself. Uh, anecdotally, I see tourism making an impact to some people's lives. Whether it's making a widespread and lasting impact is, is what I criticize. But, but you're right. I mean, very often the most vulnerable countries are the ones that especially small island countries when it comes to have a disproportionate dependence on tourism and have nothing else to fall back on in other words they don't have a diversified economy so it's either tourism or nothing you know we look at countries in the caribbean in the indian ocean in the pacific islands mm. uh, even in southeast asia although you have countries like thailand that are that are very dependent on tourism but uh, have been able to develop a more diversified economy into other things so you're not beholden to the tourist dollar as such 
if we focus on the problems of tourism rather than what it can do, you are right. One of the things it tends to do is it reinforces uh, colonial tropes. You know, uh, when I did my research in Vanuatu and I worked for the Australian government in, in development in, in Pacific Islands, what some of my informants said to me was that, you know, in colonial times, the British and the French came and put up a flag and we knew that, okay, we were now probably a part of Britain and France. These days, it's not countries putting up flags, it's multinational corporations putting up their logos yeah. and saying, um, you know, this belongs to us. Does it reinforce colonial tropes? It does. And, you know, I refer to it as a neo-colonial impact. Yeah. In other words, it's just reproducing the impacts of colonization where people were constantly, uh, in some way, perhaps it's too strong a word, but I, I, in a sense it is, was some, in some way um, bonded to people elsewhere. Certainly in terms of marginalization, you know, uh, in, in countries where tourism has developed, it's led to land speculation. Foreigners and, and, and elite can buy up the best pieces of land along the coast and in the cities, right? It, so it displaces the people who would normally live there. This is a problematic issue of, of development. We see the World Bank and others talking about liberalizing your land, liberalizing your, your cultural heritage. In other words, making it available to the the global marketplace, right? But when you do that, you know, at a very local level, the villagers in remote Swaziland have very little control over how this happens, right? Very little capacity to understand how it might be structured to suit themselves. Then we have policymakers whose main focus is on economic expansion, more jobs, which are important uh, ambitions. But if they come at the cost of people's well-being, if they come at the cost of people's ability to access their traditional country, if it comes at a, a social and ecological cost, then on balance, we have to think about that, right? But very often, the social and ecological costs are put aside for the short-term economic gain. I mean, that's not, not just the Global South thing. The yeah. problem is the Global South has a, has a lesser impact, in, in essence, to be able to manage the inadvertent impacts. If we were to generalise... You know, the, most people in the global south, when they join the, the global economy, they have a lesser capacity to engage in a more meaningful way, which leads us to think, then, is tourism necessarily the right strategy for development? Because we see many development agencies spending tons of money. You know, and this all started with the World Bank in the 1960s, where they built resorts as a vehicle for development. And it, it beggars belief because, in my mind, the, the biggest impact that tourism can make for um, communities in the, in the global south is where the distance between the, the, the tourist spending the money and the host receiving the money is a very short one. If I were to offer advice to people going to travel in the global south, I would say pay for your airfare, pay for everything else when you're in the country. Yep. Don't stay at the Radisson or the Holiday Inn or the Hyatt. Don't sue me if you are from those companies. <laughs> um, but stay at a local bungalow. Stay, stay with a locally run business. You know, don't go to McDonald's and, and have, and, and you see tourists drive me nuts when I see McDonald's, when so tourists go to McDonald's. Go to a local restaurant uh, in Indonesia, in Bali, go to a warum rather than have dinner at the holiday inn. Obviously, there's the, a, a sustainability movement within tourism that looks to address a lot of these things and, and improve practices within the sector. And I guess the general motto around that is take nothing but footprints and leave nothing behind. Mm -hmm. However, you wrote that 
the mere presence of tourists, no matter how careful or well-intentioned they may be, can have profoundly disturbing and damaging impacts to mm. host communities. Yeah. I'm interested in that. And I'm also interested if you, you can share any examples. I know you touched on Bali, mm. but some mm. examples around this idea of over-tourism yeah. as well yeah. and, and some, some tangible kind of situations that you've come across in your research. I see two main questions there. The impact of the tourists make by the mere presence and the issue of tourism. And you're right, you know, the, the, the ideal is to take nothing but photographs and leave nothing but footprints. That's the ideal. It's an impossible ideal in, in a sense. So in terms of the presence of tourists in the place, and I guess it's, it's more um, distinct when the context is lower down the rung of development, where the context is more removed from the global supply chains. If I were to say First Nations tourism or Indigenous tourism, right, the, the impact of tourists in a community immediately upsets the balance, right? Yes. Because if you're poor and you suddenly see a bunch of tourists in the village, lots of cameras and all the things that come along with it, the, the association that is inevitably made is one between foreigner, money, privilege. Is there anything I can sell? Is there anything I can do to get some of that money? And why should we begrudge someone who lives in a village who's poor from wanting to do that, right? What I'm talking about is not so much a problem of tourism, but a problem of poverty and development, right? Yes. Tourism just makes it worse, in a sense. So I'll give you an example. Uh, well, there's, a, there's a famous filmmaker who's now, who's no, 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 longer, no longer alive, Dennis O'Rourke. In the 80s, he made a film in the, in the Sepik River region of um, Upper New Guinea, where he took some travellers up the Sepik River. Immediately, when villagers saw these tourists coming, coming up with their, you know, all of the accoutrements that tourists tend to have, they immediately started pulling things out to sell. And they couldn't understand why tourists didn't want to pay for what they had. So after a long period of having tourists, it changes the way people look at their cultural heritage, it changes the way people look at their activities. For example, in my own research as a doctoral student, I was looking at the land diving villages in, in the Pacific, yeah. in Vanuatu specifically, where, you know, um, uh, bungee jumping is motivated on that, right? Their activities went from doing it only on special occasions during the yam harvest to doing it for four months every day, every year, every time a cruise boat came in, yeah. right? Yeah. And it caused other villagers who didn't own this property to build their own towers, to have their own ceremonies. So. It's inevitable that tourism changes these things because of the necessities that people in the global south have to negotiate. And I mean, you see this example replicated recently. There was a uh, report I saw about the impact of more and more foreigners wanting to, to consume an ayahuasca experience in, yes, in Central Yes, I saw this. Right? Yeah. So much so that it's just becoming this commodified, bland, overdone, meaningless thing. So, but on the other hand, you know, and I've had people, respondents in countries in the global south say to me, but we need money. If we don't do, we need money to pay school fees. Mm. You know, we want a generator. We want to buy a truck. How else do we get those things if we don't do this? So who am I to tell these people not to do that, right? Yeah. Who am I to tell these people not to commodify their cultures for tourists just because, for the sake of earning money? I guess it's 
development, if you like. <laughs> Absolutely. And a very good point is, you know, whilst we're, I guess, looking at the impacts of bringing in tourism, you've also got to look at the impacts of taking it away, if that's what you're arguing for. I think to, to expect to develop some tourism and not expect any residual impact mm. is probably a naive thing to say. There will be some. The question is, it depends what you're willing to give up. I want to... Uh, and we see, you know, I mean, in my research, in many developing countries, women tend to work more in tourism, in a lodge, mm. or as, as, a, as a front desk person in the hotel. So the shifts that are taking place at a domestic level are really, really important because you have women, for example, in Fiji, they will work 12 hours a day, six days a week in a resort, and then go home and do the work that they would normally do anyway, looking after the children and the house. And in terms of the shift, the power shifts taking place, we see women having a capacity to earn more money than men. And you can imagine the dynamics of how that potentially plays out. Well, and particularly in a, a society or a culture like Fiji, and I've, I've done a lot of work there, and you know those shifting power dynamics in that culture are significant and have flow-on mm. impacts to other social issues. You know, yeah. the Pacific's got one of the highest rates of family violence in the world. And it's remarkable how women will go off and do this work and come home and do everything else and the man continues to do his thing. This is not to denigrate men by any, any length at all. It's just to say this is the situation that often occurs. Yes. Um, you know, and we see this, for example, in Sri Lanka. It's, it's, it's kind of different again, where they say... We don't want women working in hotels because it gives them a bad reputation dealing with mm -hmm. foreigners. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea of protecting them and then denying them the ability to go and work as well. So, yeah, it's kind of complex. To your second question about over-tourism, right? When we talk about over-tourism, it's more than overcrowding. You know, uh, it's very simplistic to say it's about overcrowding. Over-tourism, at least the way we define it in our book, is when... Uh, it moves beyond overcrowding, which is a temporary thing, when it becomes a permanent fixture, when people's well-being, livelihoods, securities are permanently changed. I use Bali as a lot in, in, my, in my teaching as a, as a whipping, uh, whipping boy because it's a really good example. It's gone beyond the highest threshold, but the tendency is to want more and more. We see this in places you know, where there's a very sensitive social and ecological backdrop Tourism has an impact on that eventually. So over-tourism is not overcrowding per mm. se. It's about how tourism creates permanent and lasting impacts on a resident community's well-being, sense of place and security and all of those things yeah. uh, that, that they should value. Taking us right back to this idea of what tourism is and something I read of yours talks about that Tourism is a desire to explore other places mm. and experience other people, other cultures. Mm. Can you explain the concept of othering and how that fits into the tourism sector? If I, as an Australian, went to America and other Americans, I'm doing it on a level where we are equals rather than there's not a dis disparity in our power relationship. Right. right if I did that in Japan, but if I did that in, let's say, countries at the bottom of the, the development table, then I have a distinct power differential. Othering comes about, and uh, Edward Said, the, the famous cultural studies guy, popularized the term. Othering comes about when we 
in some way stereotype or generalize about a people and place in a spectacle sense. You know, we, we no longer see them as our equals or our peers. We see them as this kind of weird, strange, exotic other. Rousseau, the philosopher, he often talked about the noble savage, you know, how uh, it, we, we're attracted to the noble savage in a way. I mean, it's a very dated idea, but as travelers, there's a tendency to want the most authentic experience. Yes. You know, we don't want a Disneyfied version of a dance. We want to go to the village when, when the ceremony, when the yams are being harvested, and we want to see it at that point in time. The drive for authenticity, to some degree, I believe, is behind othering because we want to see the native in their costume authentically presented rather than we don't want to see, and I, and I use this word for the purposes of the discussion, we don't want to see the native wearing trousers because that just ruins the experience for us, right? In my work in the Pacific, they often say that, you know, uh, a lot of the, the villages that I did work and they said, oh, we have to pretend that we're uncivilized. Yeah. Uh, in, in Fiji and Vanuatu, they make jokes about cannibalism and very often they would say to tourists, what distinctly comes to mind is that in Vanuatu, one of the islands, Mystery Island, they have this huge pot, uh, it's called the cannibal pot, where they put two men inside who, who are dressed in grass skirt and looking like their ancestors and they get tourists to come in to the pot with them and pretend to be cooked in it and, and you know and, and slaughtered in it what? You know, and they laugh about the, the cannibal pot right they think this is what tourists want they want us to live up to the tropes and the, and the generalizations yeah. they have of us as travelers we don't want our our visions of the native dashed by thinking that these people might actually drive a car or wear clothes like we do we kind of for our own benefit and joy shape characterizations of people some which can often be very demeaning and hurtful uh, if you think about it that way but it seems to be essential and it seems to be part and parcel of people traveling to the global south so you you wrote something which i love you talk about tours or trips to particularly to remote or hard to reach places or places seen as particularly exotic being symbiotic relationships where tourists, and I love this, extract exoticism from the other while the hosts work to gain the maximum economic advantage. You know, what's the first thing we do when we go to uh, a place that we haven't been to before? We whip out the mobile phone, we take some photos. Mm -hmm. What do we do when we are attending a cultural performance? We whip out the phone, we take a photo of them, and very often we want to be in the photo with them. It's like the work that, that you do in, um, in, in orphanage tourism. You know, the bragging rights are great if you have a brown kid in your photo and you post it all over Facebook and Instagram. Absolutely. It's what I mean, right? Yeah. We want to have this authentic experience with the native. You know, there was a, there was a show on um, one of the TV programs. It's kind of a, kind of a mainstream anthropological uh, kind of experiment. The show was called Meet the Natives. And in a sense, it's what I'm talking about. As, as travellers, we want to have that. You know, you don't want to come to Australia and not meet an authentic Aboriginal person. I, I've heard this phrase so many times from international tourists. You know, they come to the city, Melbourne, where I'm from, and say, there are no authentic Aboriginal people here. <laughs> what is an authentic Aboriginal person? It's a great fodder for marketing. It's great fodder for the brochures. Because that's what fuels our desire to go to a place, mm. our imaginations in the first place. Do you think that it is possible to have an authentic 
experience while traveling mm. that's not this yeah. highly manufactured either by the tourism provider, so the, the mm. third party organization that's facilitated this for you, or by the community themselves. Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult because, you know, even when a community hosts you in their village, they will adapt some things to suit you, right? So yeah. uh, it's like, you know, for me as an Australian, I've been living in Japan for nine months now. Everything I knew when I visited the country as a tourist is put in a, a very different light now that I live here. I see things differently. So the best way to experience authenticity in travel is slow travel in a way. Is to, is to be there in, in a place for a long time rather than a couple of hours in the village and then, and then scooting off again. I think it's a bit far-fetched to say that we can have purely authentic travel uh, because there needs to be some kind of adaptation for the tourists and for the hosts themselves. I would ask, do, do tourists necessarily want an authentic experience? Because the authentic experience when you travel in the global south is one of poverty. Do they really want that? No. They want the manufactured experience, yeah. as you say. They might want it from a distance. You know, it's like slum tourism, where tourists go through the, the favelas in Rio in a bus, air-conditioned bus, and look at slums from a distance, but not actually have to live in the slums. So do you think on that then, that tourism can ever actually be mutually beneficial to the same level, given the power dynamics mm. and the imbalances and... And what we talked about earlier with the neo-colonialism and, and the harm that can come, yeah. is it possible for it to be mutually beneficial? Look, I'm, I'm a natural optimist and I'd like to think so. I'd like to think there is a model that we can, that we can find that finds that sweet spot between giving tourists an optimal experience as well as giving the community that hosts them optimal return, right? Not just in terms of economic returns, but the whole thing, right? I'd like to think so. I think at scale, the smaller scale it is, the more likely that will happen. If a destination becomes more visited, they build larger, larger resorts. You know, and it goes back to our very first discussion at the beginning. The closer the consumer is to the source, the better the impact. I could buy a package holiday to Indonesia and not spend a single cent there. I, I, I pay all my money to the travel agent in Australia. And it's the, you can see the same thing. So, yes, I think it can be. We need to find a model that disrupts all of the, the bottlenecks and intersections in the middle and have the producer being closer to the consumer. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is community-based tourism, right? This is the name for it? Yes, you could, you could, you could say that. You could say community-based tourism, although many of my colleagues would say community-based tourism assumes that the community has an equal impact and, and, and capacity to run. A lot of times, you know, communities in the global south really don't have the capacity. You know, they don't have the capital, the know-how, the networks. And likely so, if they are supported to do it, they may be supported by a foreign-owned right. business or right. company. Totally, totally. Right. And, you know, we can't escape the fact that many people from developing countries love travelling to, to the global south because it's cheap. In a sense, that's probably the root of some of the problems. When when the value of something is seen to be so low, we think that it, we can we can do with it as we please. Mm, and so accessible, right? And it's like sex tourism in developing countries. You know how sex tourists themselves have very little regard for the impact of their, their activities. 
It's more about what they want to do. And because they can do what they do because it's cheaper. And secondly, because the, the, the judiciary that polices it is not as attentive right. to them as they would be. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not down in the mouth about tourism. I love it. I think it's a great way to, to, for young people to develop a, a wider perspective on the world. I think it's a great way for people to contribute towards you know, a lot of the development concerns that we see. But it has to be done in a manner that um, is not predatory and is more kind of um, collaborative. Yeah, yeah. So changing the topic slightly, or we might be staying on the same topic, given your area of research, what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? I would say that one of the greatest challenges for us as humans is how we continue our relationship with the planet. You know, whether we see the planet as a, as a you know, it's like in many... In, in New Zealand and in India, the, the Ganges River and the, the Whanganui, they have been given legal rights that humans have. You know, if we see the planet as a kind of a living, breathing being, and that how we treat it has to be uh, has to be respected, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, consumerism—that's the worst face of humanity, right? Right. The way we just continue to to think that there is there is no limit, there's no end to to the extent to which we can draw from the planet. I think changing our lifestyles to be more uh, cognizant of, of our impact on the planet is, is important, especially if we think about the next generation, right? Because the idea of sustainability is asks the question, is what we're doing now going to compromise the legacies for the next generation? That's the key challenge. I don't have an answer for that. No, that's a great answer. It's a perfect answer. <laughs> so if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? I'm not a Buddhist, but I, I, I like the, the tenets that, that Buddhism tends to, you know, I would say if it was just two words, uh, be kind. If we're all kinder to each other, if we're all kinder to the planet, I think we'll, have, we'll probably have a, a better set of circumstances to deal with. Tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now and why? Ah, uh, that, that's a difficult one because so often you get disappointed, right? right. I remember uh, when Aung San Suu Kyi was in her heyday, I, I celebrated the things that she does, only to find 20 years later that uh, I'm not so sure anymore. Uh, it was a huge, huge disappointment. Yeah, it, it's a letdown yeah. when, you, when, you, when you see that kind of thing. So. I have a tendency to not valorize other humans because I think they're all humans like us. Where, Joseph, is your favorite place on earth? If we were talking about a destination, that's a really difficult question. Mm. And I will give you a really, really cheesy answer. <laughs> My favorite place on earth is where the people I love the most are there. You know, I could be in Tahiti on a nice beach, but if the people I love are not with me, then it's really not fun, right? Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. for people that travel for work, um, yeah. as you and I both do, I think, yeah. you know, there's something quite incredible about the opportunity and the privilege of being able yeah. to do that. But you're very often alone in your experience. I mean, for some people, the most favorite place is a staycation at home, right? Yeah. Yeah. What book are you reading to or podcast are you listening to? Books. Yeah, I've got one here that I'm reading now. And it's kind of in line with our work. It's by Tim Jackson, 
and it's called prosperity without growth. And that's a very important question. Can we have prosperity without economic growth? And I'd like to think it's possible, but most politicians around the world would disagree with that. They would say, unless we have growth, we are going backwards. You know, he makes some, some really, really important assertions in this book. It really comes down to, you know, the way we live, the way, you know, the, our relationship with the planet, as I said before. Um, and I would, I, could, I would dig out some quotes for you if I could, but there are so many, so many, many important uh, things that, that, that he talks about, right? We ask the question, can we have prosperity without growth? It's a question that I'd like to find an answer to. So that's what I'm reading right now. Yeah. And it's taking me a while because as an academic, I try not to skim through things. I try to read each word and understand it. Yeah. And that's, a, that's, a, that's a, an occupational hazard. <laughs> and do you listen to podcasts? Uh, I like listening to podcasts that are by, when I say normal people, that have a bit of fine-grained truthfulness in them, you know, rather than podcasts by entertainers. Yeah, um, yeah. ABC has a podcast called, um, what is it called now, uh, The Philosopher's Zone. Yep. That's always very good for long drives. Great. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Joseph, for your time and your knowledge and insight and your ability to kind of dissect some really complex issues down into bite-sized chunks for us. Yeah, I, I really appreciate having you on. No worries. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's always good to talk about these things because I think they're complex. And very often people simplify it down to the, you know, become very reductionist about it. But I, I, I think, you know, uh, travel is an enormous privilege, like you said. It has enormous capacity. But the trouble is we don't optimise the capacity for good that it can do because it, it just becomes a a self-indulgent phenomenon, pastime kind of thing. Part of the whole consumerist movement Absolutely. to just take, take, take. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you through a lot of your writing and research is, is doing a great job at shining a light on this. So thank you. Thanks, Lee. I'm glad someone's reading it. Oh, we are reading it for sure. And we'll put it all in the show notes, links to Joseph's okay. research. So if anybody wants to check that out, it will all be online. Please do. It's great if you can't sleep. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Joseph. See you, Lee. Thanks. Happy travels. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.